Hello everyone and welcome to the Bootstrap Founder. My name is Avid Kahl and I talk about bootstrapping, entrepreneurship and building in public. Today I'm talking to Dr. Sherry Walling. She's a speaker, author and psychologist. Her work had a profound impact on my founder journey. It was the book that I was reading, her book, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together, that really helped me while preparing my own business for an exit, and it materially changed my stress and anxiety levels for the better after I was done reading it. Unsurprisingly, I wanted to talk to Sherry about mental health topics uh, that every founder struggles with. Burnout, imposter syndrome, and just being stressed out of our minds. We live through that every day. There's a lot we have to deal with as entrepreneurs, and it's very useful to have a mental health professional in our ranks, and Sherry is that person for so many founders. Before we get started with our conversation with Dr. Sherry Walling, let me thank the sponsor for this show, Acquire.com. Imagine this. You're a founder who's built a solid SaaS product. You acquired customers, and the product is generally consistent in its monthly recurring revenue. The problem is you're not growing for whatever reason, lack of focus or lack of skill or just plain lack of interest, and you feel stuck. What should you do? Well, the story that I would like to hear is that you buckled down and somehow reignited the fire and got going and getting past yourself and the cliches, and then start working on your business rather than just in the business. That would be great. You start building an audience and you move out of your comfort zone and do sales and marketing, all the things we don't like to do, and in six months, you've tripled your revenue. Well, the reality isn't as simple as this. Situations may be different for every founder facing this crossroad, but too many times the story ends up being one of inaction and stagnation until the business becomes less valuable or worse, worthless. If you find yourself here, or your story is likely headed down a similar road, well, let me offer you a third option. Consider selling your business on Acquire.com. Capitalizing on the value of your time is the smart move here. Acquire.com is free to list, and they've helped hundreds of founders already, so go to Acquire.com and see for yourself if this is the right option for you. And now, here is Dr. Sherry Walling. A while ago, I asked my followers on Twitter if they ever experienced burnout. And 89% of them said that they had been experiencing it in the past or that they are currently mid-burnout. That's one in 10 of my audience on Twitter. And I was extremely surprised by this. If mental health is such an incredibly common problem, 9 out of 10 people experience it, why do we so rarely talk about it in our communities? Is there still a taboo around it? What, what, what do you know about this lack of communication about this very important topic? I mean, I talk about it all day, every day. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> all right. that's the thing I talk about. And there certainly are, I think the conversation around mental health in the entrepreneur community has really uh, opened up quite a bit in the last five to 10 years. Um, when I first started in this space um, in like 2015, 2016, it was really quite unusual. Um, I think one of the things that makes it difficult to talk about is that um, there aren't as much as we would like there to be these lovely clickbaity five things that you can do to solve burnout. Um, they're harder than that. 
And so burnout prevention, burnout identification, uh, they're actually sort of complicated processes and they don't lend themselves super easily to a nice clickbaity soundbite or a tweet. So to talk about mental health in a really meaningful way is actually a pretty nuanced conversation that sometimes founders don't have the time and energy for, don't make the time and energy for. Yeah, I think it's a priority problem for, for many people, right? They see so many other things that they need to tackle that are more tangible, maybe. Maybe solutions are more apparent to these problems, so they kind of dismiss the whole conversation. It's unfortunate, I feel. I, I wish people would talk about it more and feel to be more of a problem that they need to actually address. There's kind of like a normalization of burnout. Like you, you just yeah. sort of expect that if you're founder, you're going to have burnout. And that's not correct. And it's actually very problematic because burnout, which we can get into in more detail if you want to, but burnout, true burnout is actually brain damage. It's like directly observable on a functional MRI. And so for us to normalize, oh, we just do this to ourselves. We just run our brains ragged. That's just part of it. I think is a pretty unacceptable way to operate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if it's if it's something real, and that that's I usually compare this to something like imposter syndrome, which isn't even a syndrome, right? It's it's the imposter phenomenon for, for many people, at least apparently in the clinical world, as much as I know it. So that, that is something that also exists, but is by far not as medically studied and proven and actually a problem, like a, a mental health issue, as burnout right. is. And I, I sometimes wonder, people don't even go to great length to talk to mental health or any medical professionals about it. They, they self-diagnose. So that, that was the same for me. Like, I think, I believe I've experienced burnout twice in my life. I have no medical trail. Like, I never went to an actual psychologist or just talked to anybody in the field. I just thought, ooh, this is bad. I need to take time away from this and all that. So I kind of, even then, knowing that I had a problem, I struggled to seek medical help. Do you know why I did that? <laughs> Can you diagnose me <laughs> right I now? Do, I do think that people don't know that burnout is a formal, diagnosable problem. And I will also say that that often the psychological or mental health community is not super adept at dealing with burnout. We often misdiagnose it as depression or we often dis misdiagnose it as um, generalized anxiety or something else. So I think um, there's a both and problem when it comes to really getting good care for burnout. One, people don't recognize that that would be helpful. And two, it's harder than it should be to find mental health professionals or medical professionals who really understand burnout, especially the context that comes with a founder. Mm -hmm. To be honest, if you looked at the psychological profile of most founders, they look a little bit like somebody who's a, a little bit manic, has maybe a little bipolar two going on, is a little bit obsessive, and then has these sort of fits of depression. <laughs> and so I think mm -hmm. it's really easy for mental health professionals to pathologize founders and not understand the context and the amount of passion and drive and energy that goes into growing a business. And I think that's where we miss each other a little bit. Mm. Yeah, I was. that was exactly what I was wondering when I saw my 89% of people telling me, and I think it was 10-ish or 20%, that we're in burnout right now as per their self-diagnosis. And I was thinking, man, is that just an entrepreneurial thing? Is that just a founder 
kind of people just have an easier time having a hard time is is a does it hit entrepreneurs harder than other groups have do you have you experienced this um so it's it's a little bit tricky because i think burnout is also a nice phrase to describe a number of different things so sometimes people will say i think i'm burnt out and then you dig into their life and their situation and it's like oh you are in very significant grief. Or sometimes people will say I'm burnt out and I dig a little bit and I'm like, oh wait, actually you are, you're like clinically depressed, like just textbook depression. But burnout is an easier term to talk about, even though it is still stigmatized, it's maybe less stigmatized than some other things. So that's one of the problems that I think is happening. There was an interesting study that came out relatively recently that suggested that entrepreneurs actually have less burnout than your nine to five employee. And some of that is because the, there are these key things that drive burnout. Some of them are better for founders. Like one of the drivers of burnout is the, the, a mismatch between what you think is important and how you spend your time. So at least entrepreneurs are choosing, right? They are deciding what business they want to build. They are giving their time and energy towards something that they're choosing. They're not out of control. They're very much in control. So there's that's a protective factor that helps prevent burnout that's not present in, you know, our brothers and sisters who are working in a cubicle coding for a large company where they don't have choice or control. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's that's such a great point. Because I as as now after selling a business, I'm very much in control of what I'm doing. And I I'm my own boss, really. And I'm telling myself that I'm gonna do this. And if it's too much for me, I'm just gonna step back a little bit. I have nobody yeah. who's kind of conflating this for me or telling me to do stuff I don't want to do. So I feel extremely at ease in what I do, even though, you know, being an introvert, having conversations with people is not like the, the most enjoyable thing, really. Like I think hanging out with my puppy is a more enjoyable thing. Just <laughs> That's for my, a nice my... relationship for you. <laughs> yeah, really, it really is because the, the, the puppy doesn't challenge me, you know, it's kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of what, oh, she yeah, does, but in, in, in different ways. <laughs> <you know? laughs> right. But I know obviously that having a conversation with you is, is an important part of what I can do to help other people. So I know that there's there's meaning to this and it's what I want to do, right? It's not the mismatch between, I don't want to code this, but I actually want to do this. So I get it. <laughs> but um, I, I do wonder sometimes with founders in particular who are building their first business, people who are who still have something to prove, if, if that is a phrase that we should ever use <laughs> in terms of building a business. They often follow what I would describe as hustle culture or the grind set, right? This kind of put all your energy and all your time into your business or else you'll never make it. And that seems very disjointed from this, I have control over my destiny conversation that we're yeah. currently having. Yeah, sometimes we say, oh good, you're an entrepreneur. You can choose to work whichever 20 hours in a day you'd like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like you get control to choose, but um, yeah, I mean, Hustle porn, hustle culture, um, much of it is based on a real sort of limited understanding of how our brains actually work. And so a little bit of a scratch into some basic like neuroscience 101. And I think most people will come away feeling like, oh, that's not the right strategy. There's a difference between doing a lot of work and doing our best work. And I think sometimes that's where founders make maybe a 
a less than ideal trade is this sense that hours logged leads directly to outcomes. And, um, you know, there are days when that's true, but generally speaking, the quality of your work time is a much better predictor of your creative thought and of your ability to implement a new or novel idea than just sort of putting in the hours. And I do think that it is, it is sort of hustle culture, hustle porn, that is the allure to believe that burnout is not only normal, but like a badge of honor, like sort of like if you're not burnt out, what are you doing with yourself? Uh, you must not care about your company. You must not be motivated. And of course, those things are not true. Mm -hmm. yeah, it often comes from comparison, right? You compare yourself to, to other people's stellar performance, the things they choose to share. And you see all these founders crushing it, a phrase that I personally hate a lot because it's obviously just a reflection on what they want to portray. It's not the reality of their lives because no business is ever without problems or setbacks or anything like it. And I, I wonder, it's, I think it's human nature to compare yourselves to your peers to see where you stand because we, we want to see that the social context in which we operate and if we're conforming with the, what people expect us to be. And, you know, there are many layers to this, but how can people avoid comparing themselves to the wrong people and then following these hustle culture evangelists who themselves probably even operate in the way that they give advice? Right. I think one of the... A really helpful place of comparison is maybe not the word that I would use, but a, a helpful way to learn from and be on the journey with other people is to be in a mastermind group or something where you get a deeper look into how another business is truly functioning. I think another way to do that is to have a mentor. I mean, maybe even someone that you pay, maybe they're a business coach, but a mentor who has truly done it before and you get the deep dive, gritty look into how they function and how they work. So anybody who is selling you something or anybody who is proclaiming the, the benefits of their strategies on social media um, You're just not getting a deep enough dive into who they are and how their business works to know if it's at all relevant to you. And relevancy is a really key. Businesses are different, different sort of, you know, industries and customer bases are really different. And so having a sounding board with other founders that's tailored and specific is most helpful to you. Oh, that's great. That's, that's why I'm such a big fan of building in public. Because people who build in public and share the ups and the downs with a focus on the, the failures and the struggle, the mistakes and the learnings that they have, they paint a much more realistic picture of what a business is like. And surrounding yourselves with people who are honest enough to build in public also creates relationships with honest people who will give you their honest feedback if you're doing something you should probably not be doing. Right? Right. That's, that's why I'm a big fan of this. And I guess a mastermind is... A privatized building public group, if that makes yeah. sense, you know, like yeah. a little, a little group that where people keep it to themselves, but do share with each other. And I think it's a great step for people to start. Do you have any ideas how people can easily find them? Because I've always found, um, and not maybe not easily, but reliably find good mastermind groups. Because personally, I've always had trouble as an introvert again 
talking to people to even get into the door, right? To get my foot into the door, that always was a challenge to overcome. This person, I don't know them. Why, why would they talk to me? Like I, I would assume that a lot of founders, particularly the ones coming from a technical background, have a little bit of introversion in them. So how can they overcome that particular self-blocking device? I mean, not, the, not to like promote my husband's stuff, but MicroConf <laughs> does have oh, a, go ahead. <laughs> a mastermind matching service at this point. Um, mm. There's also another one that I'm not sure if it's still going, but Mastermind Jam was um, a, a service that a friend Ken did for many years. I'm not totally sure if that's still happening, but uh, the MicroConf one is for sure. Um, I think it's a good, it's a good thing to even crowdsource, right, to put out to Twitter and to try to connect with some people who are interested in a mastermind. I do find more value in ones that are like externally organized and have maybe a, a nominal or a minimal fee because that puts skin in the game. The worst thing is getting into a mastermind group with people who say they're committed and then they don't show up, you know, and it's you're just chasing them to get on their calendar. That That's not good for anybody. So some kind of like base level of commitment is really important in a mastermind group. Yeah. Yeah. Skin in the game, I think, is for any relationship that has a business con connotation is an important part. I, I love that. And by the way, I give you blanket permission to advertise whatever your husband does, <laughs> okay. you do family business, because honestly, if it wasn't for microconf, I probably wouldn't be here. Right, MicroConf gave me the first stage, quite literally, for what I had to say when I was there in 2019 in Dubrovnik with Danielle. We talked about having sold our business on stage as an attendee talk. And that was essentially my foray into talking about entrepreneurship. And from there, all the way up. So it's amazing. It's due to Rob that it's funny because you are also connected to our sale in a way. And I'll tell you in a second, it's, it's f for Rob's conference that um, I got my, my Twitter uh, situation going, but it was mostly for your book. The first, the first book that I ever read of you, um, the, the entrepreneur's guide to keeping a shit together. I read this while we were selling our business and okay. I, I was, wow. and that was mid 2019. And that was in, in my, my own memory, which is kind of, you know, a bit spotty because it was a weird and and a very intense it, time. It's an intense time, right? It was yeah. incredibly intense. Uh, even thinking about it is is a heart rate increasing endeavor <laughs> for me at this point. It really is. I, I'm noticing a physical sensation right now. I was either at the verge of or mid burnout. I don't really know. It was it was a strong. I had a high anxiety levels. I was extremely stressed, trouble sleeping, physical reactions, gut health was off. Like all of that kind of stuff happened to me at that time. It's one of the reasons that we actually sold the business at that point was because I just couldn't really handle all the responsibility of being one of two people in a business. Danielle and I never hired anybody, and being the only technical person in that business, being tasked with solving all the problems of our five and a half thousand customer base. It was a lot. And your book, I remember this still very, very visually gave me a lot of solace and hope for being able to, to weather this time and find the, the greener grass on the other side of this. I, I'm, it may not be as eloquent, uh, eloquently expressed as I would like it to be, but I think 
reading a book from somebody's perspective who understands how stress and anxiety works in a person and what it makes you do and not do, just knowing that I'm not alone and that there is a way out of this was incredibly helpful. So thank you so much for yeah. enabling <laughs> me to, to go through this process and, and holding my hand a little bit, right? Through the magic of authorship throughout this uh, stressful time and enabling me to just uh, get rid of the my own self-inflicted and external pressure and make my life better. I'm happy at this point because in large part to your guidance through this book. Well, there's no... There's no kinder words you could give an author than to say your book mattered to me and yeah. mattered to my life. So um, I'm very, very delighted to hear that and glad that it was a useful touch point and sort of guidepost when you were trying to sort out how you needed to move on from your business. Yeah. So. It, it was, it, it's, I was surprised at that point that, that your work was, I guess, the only book I could find on this whole issue. I mean, good positioning, I guess, for you, right? Like you, you get all the sales, but in a, in, a, <laughs> in a way it was surprising and it, it, it still feels surprising to me how few works there are in, in the field intersecting the lives of founders with the lives of regular people, right? Like having the regular people problems that that seems to be such a rare thing to find. And I'm glad you you took the time and effort and, and actually codified it into a book because I think I've been recommending this to every single founder that has asked me about dealing with mental health issues or just stress and anxiety in this whole process of building and mostly exiting a business. That My experience kind of with this book has helped me recommend it up to other people. And yeah, I, I think there, there should, I don't want you to have more competitors in your field, obviously, but I think there should be more helping people yeah. get different perspectives yeah. on the same issue, right? Yeah. And yeah, I think, I do think it's a conversation that happens. People don't always call it mental health. Sometimes they call it mindset. Sometimes they call, you know, they kind of package it under other things. There aren't a lot of formally trained mental health professionals in this space, um, which I, th I think is a problem. Um, there's a lot of founders that have ideas about it, which is super, super valid. But I do think that the professional training is pretty helpful in some of these conversations. So... And I think my next book is going to be about exiting your business. So <laughs> perfect. Maybe a little yeah. late for your first round, but <laughs> honestly, it's uh, I I would rather have you write it now than never write it. You know, like I'm, <laughs> I'm my my whole mission ever since I sold the business was to kind of pay it forward. So I I feel uh, whatever didn't exist when I was there. That's why I wrote my first book because I would have liked to read it. When I needed it, right? it's, it's kind of the the approach that I have to media now. And um, let's let's talk about the book that you just released, maybe because while I haven't read it, what I've seen in your very touching, really touching marketing materials around it has been um, something that I can relate to, even though I haven't read the book. And uh, maybe. I will I will give you the opportunity to explain first what the book is about and then I will kind of integrate my actual story into this. Yeah. So the book is called Touching Two Worlds and it is part memoir and then part analysis as a psychologist into the world of grief. 
So um, the book was kind of an accidental book in that it was written, I lost my dad to esophageal cancer and my brother to suicide within six months of each other. Um, that was in 2018, 2019. And so a big part of my just personal process around working through those experiences was to write about them and was to begin talking to people about grief. And I think what's so interesting um, with those of us who are founders or high-performing professionals or, you know, we're, we're the people who are on the go, the movers and the shakers of the world, we often don't give ourselves much space for grief. You know, it feels like I'm busy creating a world. I'm not going to mourn the things that aren't around anymore. Um, and I, I've really found that to be a problem, especially in entrepreneurs and in founders, as they have, in many cases, these really unprocessed losses that shape them in ways that are unexpected, but yet quite powerful. So writing about it is my attempt to work through it myself and to sort of offer offer some notes and guidance to people who are coming after me who've had similar losses. It's uh, And that is where I intersect with that story because I think unprocessed loss is something that I have struggled with without knowing for decades at this point. I, I lost my mother when I was 18 to suicide as well. And that was a, for an 18 year old and unprocessable moment. I feel, I remember that it, it was just a, a fact I dealt with. And I then very slowly, like a background process behind everything else I was doing, dealt with it for the next decade. And yeah. it was, around 28 when I started to actually become a programmer before that I was just like hanging around university in Germany because it's paid for by the government so I just as well I had a great time <laughs> I learned stuff and I, I was coding on, on the side and but I really only became a professional software engineer 10 years after that and it took me that long I, I recognize that now being yet another 10 years older that that was the time that because I had no help I had to to deal with it in chunks I had to just deal with all the, the emotional baggage of how it affected other people around me, how it affected my life and my studies. And, you know, it, it essentially what was still somewhat of a child <laughs> growing into an adult, all of this had to be done kind of by figuring stuff out. And I had really no guidance there and no help. And that impacted how long it took me to even be able to effectively work as a, be as a human being, right? It took me a decade, which is like if I hadn't had the support of the the country I lived in and the people around me, that would have been very troublesome for me. So I I definitely understand not dealing with stuff for a long time. And it's a problem, right? It's a problem that affected me for, again, a decade. And it shouldn't have. So I'm very grateful that you reflect on this in, in public, what, what a book is. And I love the idea that this book is also memoir slash self-reflection method for you. I think writing is such a powerful tool to come to to your own thoughts and understand your own thinking. Um, that, that is that is one way that I I feel very strongly for the topic, and I'm grateful that you wrote about it. And the other one is now entrepreneurship related, and that is something that I might want to touch on because um, the idea of grief to me was always, from my own experience, a very person-related thing, right? You grieve a person and you grieve the loss of a person. But when we sold the business, and I'm trying to be very careful here 
the business is not a person, right? The business is a thing. It's an entity you create and you set up and it runs and you operate it. It's, it's almost more of a machine. But we felt a very strong sense of grief when we handed yeah. over the keys to the business. Something we did never expect. Even though my, my partner and I, Danielle and I, we were life partners and business partners at the same time. We joked about it being our baby, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it wasn't, obviously, because it doesn't love you back. Babies do. But the business was something that we, we gave over and felt this incredibly intense and mind-altering state of grief. And I think... I would have liked to be prepared for this, you know? <laughs> That's why, why I'm writing my next book about exits. <laughs> because your experience is not unusual. And, and just to sort of clarify from even, you know, the professional psychologist perspective, grief is the emotional reaction to loss. And loss has many forms. So we think about it maybe most often in reaction to the loss of life. But, I mean, I think the... The pandemic was so interesting because it created so much grief around our loss of plans, our loss of mobility, our loss of travel, you know, these things that are not human, but yet were very significant things to lose. And the loss of a business, um, you know, you say your business is not your baby, and I get it, it's not, but... There's a there's a really interesting study that looks at fMRIs of entrepreneurs' brains when they're thinking about their businesses, and the activation in the brain is very very similar to the brain activity that is um, in play when a parent is thinking about their child. So there is a deep level of attachment and identification with your business that is undeniably this form of bonding. And so to lose that attachment, to lose that connection, whether it's by a sale or by a financial crisis implosion that results in the closing of the business, grief is a really important part of that process. Um, and I think people forget about that, especially with an exit, you know, that it's supposed to be the happy story. It's supposed to be you're crossing the finish line. It's everything you've been working for. And people expect that it's going to be, you know, you're, they envy you. But in reality, it's very emotionally complicated. Um, I think maybe a, a, a fair comparison is sort of what it feels like for parents who are sending children off to college or out of when they're launching their kids. It's like everything you've been working for and everything that you, you know, are ready for. But then when you're walking by their empty bedroom, it's there's a desperate amount of grief. It's very painful. Yeah. It's, it's something that I, I, I'm not a parent, so I did not expect it in the slightest. Like I've mm. never, never experienced anything like it. I, I felt like my, my source of passion was drained away from me. I get that. That was the, the perception that I had. Like I, I was doing this not because it made us money, that, that was great, but that was not the reason we built the business. We wanted to help these people. And in our case, it was online English teachers and these people still existed after we sold the business. And I still wanted to help them because that was what I found so much joy and passion and purpose, mostly purpose in as well. And with giving away the business, the purpose of what my day was about was not something that I had any kind of connection anymore. I was so connected with the business that it was kind of, I was tethered to it, that rupturing the tether, like, had backlash. It, there was a yeah, kind of tension like bleeding on the tether. out. <laughs> You've lost yeah, an artery. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and and uh, sometimes I think entrepreneurship is all about balancing two extremes. And, and this is one of those examples to me. You have the extreme connection that you have with your business. And then something that, that I have experienced myself and that I see so many other founders experience, you have a lack of connection with the people around you that don't understand what you're doing. That, that to me is a, is a big, big entrepreneurial problem as well. And I want to talk to you about it because there's the story um, that a fellow founder, Dagobert Renouf, he, he tells this, I think it's in his Twitter bio as well, that his father-in-law did not want him to start the business with his wife. Right? The story is that um, he didn't understand or condone that the couple, the newly married couple would start a bootstrap business together. He was not a fan of this. And that must be super stressful if the people you need to support you the most are disconnected from you because they just do not. They don't support you. They don't understand you. And at the same time, you're building this very intimate connection with this inanimate being that is your business, right? It, it kind of pulls you to both sides. You want to connect here, but there's no response. And you, you do connect here. There's also no response. Entrepreneurship is hard. Right? It's yes. just such a, <laughs> such a strong, what, what do you think about this? What do you think about like family support when it doesn't exist, when people don't understand what you're doing? How, how can you deal with this as a founder? You know, I think it's the, it's the lot in life for many creatives and many, you know, I had dinner with somebody last night who's a professional circus artist and she was like, yeah, my family cut me off. When I decided to be a circus artist, they were like, if you're going to do that, you're doing it by yourself. And any time that someone is taking big risks that feel scary and difficult to understand for those who love them, there is a level of distancing that happens and it happens fairly commonly. And um, it's in some ways your family's attempt to protect themselves from the downside, from your failure which is not pleasant, right? It, it is sort of abandoning you in the risk. But um, I think it's important. It's tricky in entrepreneurship because again, it is the center of your world and it's the center of your life. But there's also an argument to, to be made for the fact that um, it can be kind of a job and you can have relationships with people who don't get it. They don't understand I mean, there were times in Rob's professional life when I really didn't quite understand what he did. Like, I'm not technical. <laughs> I was just like, I don't know what you're, what are you doing all day? Are you typing zeros and ones? Like, what is, That's what exactly is that? What it is. <laughs> so, um, and, but yet I loved him no matter what. Like, I loved him despite not really being un able to understand. Similarly, in my life as a clinical psychologist, you know, early on I worked with post-traumatic stress disorder and recently returned veterans. And he was like, that's a whole other world. Like, I never – I couldn't think about how I would do – you know, it was just – the separateness was tolerable. And so I think it's important for entrepreneurs to recognize you need a posse of people that do get it. You need that mastermind. You need that community. You need some people that you can really talk shop with. But you are not so special in your life as a business owner that it's not also important for you to have meaningful and deep connections with people who aren't entrepreneurs and just don't care what you do during the day. So... Those are also really important relationships. And I think sometimes entrepreneurs sacrifice those relationships because they 
are so attached to their business that it's so painful that they aren't understood as an entrepreneur. And it, it shouldn't be. It's just a part of you. Yeah, balance, right? You, you need to balance the, the, the people who are on your level. And I mean this not as a, you know, ranking system, but who, who are on your frequency, maybe who vibe with what you do. And you still need to have the, the external different, the ex other, another group of people who are different from you. So you can yeah. kind of see, am I overreacting? Am I spending too much time with this? And I think like lots of founders, particularly solopreneurs have this problem where they, they focus so much on the business and they see the opportunity, they see the potential, right? They see, oh, wow, if I keep growing this, and this kind of harkens back to the whole grain set thing from earlier, if I spend more time doing marketing, reach out to more people, get this going, then this will be the, the wealth generating thing that I want it to be. And then I can finally retire and buy a house for my parents, right? They have this, this dream that involves other people, but the process does not. And I think that's what that's such a dangerous thing to, to consider but it's also apparently something that many people assume to be the right way, right? That they, they don't need help. They, they have trouble asking for help. Is, do you see this in entrepreneurs? Is this a founder thing that they are taught that they can do and should do everything by themselves and don't ask for help? And that kind of transforms into this self-inflicted loneliness? I mean, most of us have a family story that necessitates that. I mean, you with the loss of your mom are really used to doing things yourself and figuring out how to do it by yourself. I mean, I grew up with uh, parents that had really significant physical medical problems. My mom was disabled in a, in a wheelchair. And so that was part of my story to just, I needed to figure things out myself. If I needed to get something, I need to get up and go get it. Like there's nobody going to do it for you. And a lot of entrepreneurs have stories like that. It, it's sort of what qualifies us to believe I can do that. So it's a it's a strength in a lot of ways. And, and often it's a way that we've made sense of difficult experiences in our lives. But of course, the downside is the isolation. And we believe that just because, you know, someone else isn't in the nitty gritty of our business and isn't pushing the business forward the way that we are, we sort of believe that they can't understand or that they can't care about us. And that's the... That's the isolationist mistake that we make. How do we pull ourselves out of this? Like, how do we open up our lives so we can have these people in it without risking not focusing enough on our, on our business? Like, where, where do we balance this? You know, one of the things that I think is really, really helpful is to have a hobby where you have a coach. So... Um, if you follow me on social media at all, you know that I have a, a funny hobby, which is I'm a circus artist. And I came into that late in life. I was 40 when I started. Um, but it's been a really, really important part of life for many of these reasons. I regularly train with other people. I regularly train with a coach. So I get practice being helped being taught, listening, following directions, going when somebody tells me to go. Um, and then I hang out with this whole community of people who does not care what my monthly revenue is or what my churn was, or, you know, they just don't care. They just care if I show up and do my stretches and come on time and like do the thing. So having a hobby is something that um, I think is a really lovely offset to 
the stresses of entrepreneurship, especially if it gets you in your body and sort of out of your uh, desk chair, not looking at your laptop. It just varies the way that you're using your time and your energy. Um, that can be super, super valuable to our neurological health. And then we're also mixing up the relationship dynamics. Like it's really good for me to not be the boss sometimes. You know, I'm the boss of my kids, sort of. I'm the boss of my team. I'm the boss of my business. And so to go somewhere and just be a student and be a learner is really, it's really good. Uh, you, br you bring to mind something that I just read this week in, in Wired Magazine. I have a print subscription to Wired Magazine. That's how old <laughs> I am. I read things in print. And there, there was a, a, a write-in letter to Wired Magazine where somebody asked um, the, the columnist, the advice columnist, um, I'm not ready to pay for therapy, but I see these mental health apps, these mindfulness apps all the time, right? Is this, is this useful? That was the question. And the answer was, mm, right? Mental health apps, yeah, they're not a replacement for therapy. Definitely not. And what they actually are, are like a, a digitized version of self-help books or self, the self-help approach. That was what it said. And it had a, it ended with the phrase, I don't want to talk about the whole, art, whole article. I'm going to put it in the show notes because I think it's on the web as well. But what it ended with was, hey, you are... When you use these apps, you try to control your breathing and you track your pulse and you start this kind of biohacking, try to interpret every single data point from your body. You don't want to get on the couch. You need to get off the couch. You need to actually hang out with other people. Because if you hang out with other people, if you do collective sports or you engage in conversations with other people, then you're not focused on breathing anymore because your body is capable of breathing all by itself. That was kind of the, the answer to this was stop focusing so much on, on optimizing yourself, right? On self-help, self self-care is important, but it's not the solution to all of your problems. The underlying problem might just as well that you not, don't have enough exposure to other people to pull, put you back into the social context that you live in. And I love this idea, like do stuff with people and your body will keep breathing. Just trust it to keep breathing. That's um, what it reminded me of, because you said you're the boss of your family, your business. You're also the boss of yourself, right? Of your own physical being. And if you start micromanaging your physical process of breathing, of, you know, when do I do this? When do I do that? I don't think it's necessarily a good way to deal with, with problems that you may be having. Well, it's sort of dissecting us into too many different parts. I actually think breath work is very helpful and I practice it. I have an app that I really like. Um, I think meditation is helpful. Yoga is helpful. Like these practices do teach us the capacity to regulate our bodies, which many of us have sort of lost those skills, but they aren't the end result. Like I do breath work so that I can perform well on a flying trapeze. <laughs> I, you know, it's it gets me where I'd like to go in my life, where I do meditation so that I can prepare to give a talk in front of hundreds of people and feel grounded and connected to myself. So those tools are tools, and having a bunch of them is great, but don't glorify them as the outcome or as the end-all, be-all of self-care. I, I like a hobby because it's about joy, and play and lightheartedness and laughter and connection. And those are really good, juicy parts of life that don't need to be hacked or optimized, but they do need time to take place. That is, that is a really nice and very nuanced position on this. 
Because I, I also, I have found through Danielle, thankfully, that meditation and journaling and mindfulness and breathing work is actually helpful to me. I, I considered these things in the past to be purely esoteric. That, that to me was, and, and, that, and that was meant as an insult at that point, right? And now I consider them surprisingly useful, which is um, something I, I've tried it out. I actually, again, microconf story, the day that Danielle and I were giving the talk in Dubrovnik in, in Croatia back in 2019, I was very excited. First time I would ever stand on stage in front of my fellow founders, many of which at that conference I have been admiring for years and sharing a story that I, with my imposter syndrome at the time, and it never really went away, thought, oof, I was just lucky to even be in this place at this time, having done all these things, standing on the shoulders of giants, really. And I was sitting there in the morning of that day in our little hotel room, looking at the Adriatic Sea, a beautiful place. And I was, I was feeding my anxiety. And what I did was I just journaled for half an hour. I did a stream of consciousness journaling, which um, I think is called morning pages by some mm -hmm. other people where you just if you write do it in the morning. Write. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was the morning. So it was adequately described as morning pages, but just really stream of consciousness, whatever was on my mind, I put it on paper and then I just kind of threw it away. Right? I never looked at it again. It was not meant to be read. It was meant to be written. So I could take those thoughts out of my mind, give my mind the yeah, the understanding that it was noted somewhere and now you don't have to keep running through the ideas in, uh, in real time. You could just put it in the background and worked super well for me. It was such a surprising thing. And I've been doing it before that too. So I knew it was going to work, which is why I did it. That Danielle introduced me to these concepts while I was dealing with the whole business side, right? The burnout in, in, in Feedback Panda before we sold it. And it really helped me ground myself. And I never thought... Before I met Danielle and with her had the opportunities of a lifetime building and selling a business, which is great. She's awesome. Um, I never thought that I would be the person that could employ these techniques. So now that we are talking about it, how can technical people who don't believe in this and engineering backgrounds, solopreneurs approach these soft topics like meditation and mindfulness? <laughs> I sorry, I just love the like soft topic quotation because we right? have um, very robust research um, <laughs> from very mainstream places like Harvard Medical mm -hmm. School to really understand what's happening in our bodies when we engage meditation, breath work, or journaling. Let's just use those as three. They're widely accessible, they're available, and they both have very significant scientific uh, support. One of the things that I think has happened to us as modern humans is that we've really separated our minds from our bodies. And especially as technical workers, we we love a big juicy mind. Like we like being able to solve problems and code in very nuanced ways to stay focused for long periods of time. But we've forgotten that everything that happens in that organ is part of a larger body system. And we do much better when we can integrate our physiological well-being into our neurological well-being. We're doing it all the time. It's not a choice. It's how our brain works. Um, but things like meditation, journaling, breath work are very, very helpful to keeping our physiological system regulated so that it can optimize the functioning of our brains. And so I would, anybody who like doesn't believe in this science, like just do a 
just do a little lit review on a medical journal or like Google it. And, um, you know, I think it's fairly undebatable at this point. And the good thing is that these tools are very, they're really accessible. Like you can do a five minute breathwork practice and sort of reset your body for a while, or you can do um, a little meditation app. And it's not a replacement for exercise. It's not a replacement for therapy. It's not a replacement for friendship, but it is a strategy to help nourish your brain and calm your body down when you need to perform at a high level. Yeah. And th that's why I kind of put it in quotes too, because that it, it is obviously working, right? <laughs> and it's obviously also like scientifically not not just described, but proven and and um, integrated. Yeah. I mean, if Calm, the app, has such a wide range, and honestly, if it has so much success as a business, it must be doing something right, right? Like even for for somebody who only wants to think in technical terms, this is a very logical conclusion that you have to come to. And I'm I'm kind of I'm talking from my current perspective to the person that I used to be when I didn't believe in it. So that's kind of where my phrasing is coming from. But I still feel a lot of people have have trouble with the way it is presented. You know, like the way that, that solutions to uh, mental health problems are presented for many people are I don't really know the the let me think about this. How would I phrase this? In a very wishy-washy kind of way, is is that a phrase that that sure. translates from German? Because um, you know, like pe people want like very discrete methods. People want the quick hack. That is the problem, yeah. right? People want the. And that's kind of where we started solution. in our conversation, right? Yeah. Like, why isn't why aren't more people talking about this? And I'll tell you because the honest to god truth is that there's not a lot of like clickbaity things that you can say that are going to make a big impact. Because I can tell you and I can show you research studies that say if you meditate for 20 minutes a day, you're going to improve your focus and creativity and overall brain health. But there's a whole lot of complexity behind how you create space for something like that. What gets in the way of you sort of disciplining yourself to do that? Do you value it? Do you even really care if your brain is... I mean, that's where we get pretty complicated. So um, the problem isn't so much whether or not these tools work. The problem is our human complexity around implementing them effectively. Is that an educational problem too? Like, do you think this should be way more front and center in the way we teach people to be people? Yeah. Again, right. I think we've segmented <laughs> the brain and the body or the mind and the body. And that's that's a kickback from Descartes. Like these are long held beliefs that are that are fundamentally incorrect. Yeah. The, to me it, it reminds me of this division that we have between knowledge work and non-knowledge work. Like as if the, the the person doing the knowledge work wouldn't inhabit a human body that is acting physically. It's, it often confuses me to think like just because I'm not moving stuff around, I'm I'm still physically like burning energy to fuel the brain that controls these things. We got lots of work to do with our conversations around mental health, but I'm glad we're having this one. <laughs> I am very glad we were having this one too. And I think I, I just wish 
it was um, easier to talk about it in our communities. I feel a lot of people have have, have um, this kind of notion that if they share anything that is potentially showing that they are not at peak physical and mental health, they're vulnerable and they're not worthy of being surrounded by all these other high performers. Yeah. I think that's, that's such a, such a bad situation to start. With. And I just think that's increasingly not true. Like mm -hmm. we've had people like Gary Vanderchuk talking about depression, you know, within our own technical people like Steli FD in his uh, podcast about inner work, like, being quite open about things that he's learning and trying about his own inner world. Um, most microcomps, for example, have some element of mental health or mindset present. Mm -hmm. If I'm not doing Damn. it, somebody else is. But maybe the next one, I know somebody we'll who see. might be there talking about <laughs> these topics. Yeah, it's it's um, it's it's. I'm glad that this happens because with every conversation that we have around the topic, we show other people that it's okay to have a conversation around this topic. Yeah, right. That's that's just which, which is why I'm. Let me bring this to a close, which is why I'm so happy that you're here today and had this conversation with me right now, because I hope that a lot of people who are listening to this will not just take something out of it, but also encourage other people around them who they see struggling or not struggling. doesn't matter. You often don't see people struggle, right? Even though they do to, to listen to it and find encouragement to talk about these things themselves and to learn from you again. Like I'm, I'm not going to push anything here, but people should really read your work because it was, yeah. it was quite, Really? Yeah, they should. It, it was quite helpful I to me. I did my best. <laughs> so you have a couple books. I have a podcast. I just did a yes. TEDx talk. Um, yeah, where, do, where can people find you? Maybe let's, let's, let's yeah. codify it like this. Where do you want people to find you? Uh, my professional work is mostly on zenfounder.com, um, which is also the name of my podcast. And you can see links and descriptions of the books that I've written or the retreats or events that I'm hosting. Um, and then you can also follow me on social media if you're curious about how a psychologist also is a circus artist. I do a lot of that on, on Instagram and uh, Twitter and LinkedIn. So, I highly recommend that follow because it might like if you're listening to this and you think, oh yeah, I, I think I need to deal with a couple issues that I haven't thought about much. Um, following Sherry is a very good idea, and it will be a. It will make your journey easier and you'll come out as a better person with a better understanding of yourself. So thank you so much for being on today and talking to me My about pleasure. all these complicated and often heavy things. Yeah. It was a real eye-opening conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening to The Boots of Founder. You can find me on Twitter at Avid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. You'll find my books and my Twitter course there as well. If you want to support me and the show, please subscribe to my YouTube channel and get the podcast in your podcast player of choice. And please leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. Any of this will truly help the show. So thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.